I'm Fred Eichler, and I have been a lifelong admirer of Fred Bear and his legacy. As a kid growing up reading Fred Bear's field notes and watching his adventures on TV instilled in me a passion to experience the many things Fred got to experience in his hunting career. I'm excited to introduce each new episode of this digital field notes series and to continue the legacy of a man that had a monumental impact on not only me, but also on the sport of archery. This episode of Fred Bear's Field Notes is brought to you by Bear Archery. More than 85 years ago, Fred Bear decided to follow his passion and start an archery company. He believed a quality bow should be accessible to all people, no matter their age, gender, or economic status. He believed the finest trophies are not always in the harvest, but in the memories of fellowship and the great outdoors. Today, the Bear Archery team holds tight to the principles Fred founded the company on. Bear continues to create extremely reliable and intensely lethal archery equipment capable of harvesting any game animal in a quick and ethical fashion. Explore the all-new lineup of bows and accessories on BearArchery.com. We are Bear Archery. This is the Fred Bear Way. Chapter 10, India, 1963. India, land of romance and colorful history, one of the oldest wellsprings of mankind, two-thirds the size of Europe, the land of Buddha, the Bengal Lancers, Gunga Din, Mowgli, the Jungle Boy, and Shere Khan, the Great Asian Tiger. In the spring of 1963, a New York photographer and I went to India to hunt tigers and make a film of the event. We were guests of the Maharaja of Bundi at Pulsgar Palace, Rajasthan, India, for 11 days. And during this time, I had to adjust from a cool Michigan climate and typical American schedule of breakfast at 8, lunch at noon, and dinner at 7, to 100-degree heat breakfast at 10, lunch at 2.30, and dinner anywhere from 10 p.m. to 2.30 a.m. We stopped off at Istanbul, Turkey, en route to see the ruins of marble monuments still standing at Ox Maiden, the place of the arrow, on a hill on the outskirts of Istanbul. These pillars mark the distance of arrows shot from Turkish flight bows by the sultans of the 14th century. Saturday evening, April 20th, Istanbul, Turkey. We are sitting at the Cumbriet Pavillon, waiting for the belly dancers to appear. Our host is the Minister of News, Broadcast, and Publicity. The light is poor and the table very small. A thousand people here in a place big enough for 300. The performance is scheduled for sometime between 1 and 3 a.m., and is supposed to be the best in Turkey. I hope I will be awake when the girls come out. As nearly as I can calculate, jet lag has us eight hours from our accustomed schedule already, and the prospect of seeing this show through half-closed eyelids is not what I would have planned on. We may not go to Pakistan as planned. We'll try to set up a boar hunt here instead. I have just asked the minister about the flight distance monuments at Ox Medan. He says these ancient relics may be involved in a housing development in that area, 
but hopes that we can find some of them tomorrow. People are still coming in. Both men and women dress as we do at home and also dance the same way, except here we see no one doing the twist. The minister talks to us as we wait for the show to begin, sipping potent Turkish liquor. He tells us his countrymen suspect that Kennedy made a deal with Khrushchev to take our missile sites out of Turkey. He hopes not. They would like to have them here. A woman sits outside the door of the men's room and dispenses toilet paper for a price. Sunday. We have just returned from a boat ride. Guest of Orhan Gunseray, top cinema actor and producer in Turkey. Our cruise took us along the Bosporus, the strait separating Europe from Asia. There were five in our party, including the Minister of Tourism and the man in charge of the boat. The waterway is about 18 miles long, and it took us three or four hours to sail this distance. We stopped at one point and bought a loaf of bread, wine, and several kinds of fruits and nuts for our lunch. The weather was cool, and once it started to rain, so the skipper rigged up a canvas shelter for us. Gunsery was handsome and a genial host, but conversation was limited because of the language barrier. While I was writing, we were interrupted by a news reporter and photographer. Both seemed very much interested in our visit and took pictures for the paper. We're having dinner tonight at the Hilton, guests of the public relations man there. Between the newsmen and public relations men, we are never alone. They work in shifts. One rests while the other drills us and snaps pictures. Halmy's Life magazine card is a powerful instrument. His assignment for life, trying to gather information on the methods of film companies in different countries, brings more of these fellows than we would normally have down on our heads. I don't know how long I can stand it. Both the newsmen are fine, intelligent Turks, however. One of them is a graduate of the University of Nevada. We sat at a reserved table for the excellent buffet at the Hilton last night, getting a background of Turkish history from our host. We have an invitation to attend a Muslim service. Oh, I forgot to say that the belly dancers last night had quite beautiful eyes. Monday, we went out to Oxmeden. Found it with very little trouble. Oxmeden is more or less open field, with a scattering of houses set among the pillars. Most of the shafts are crumbling now, and while some of the inscriptions are legible, modern Turkish scholars cannot read them. Back during the time of the Ottoman emperors, however, it must have been a splendid place. Anecdotes of Turkish archery says, quote, the Ottoman emperors with their courts frequently indulged in public in the diversion of archery, and there was an extensive piece of ground set apart for the purpose upon an eminence in the suburbs of Constantinople, commanding an extensive view of the city and harbor called Ox Medan, or the place of the arrow. This place was full of marble pillars erected by these archers who had excelled in shooting their arrows at a remarkable distance. These pillars were inscribed with the names of the archers, the extraordinary distance at which they had shot their arrows, and usually with some verses in praise of their dexterity. Selim, the reigning emperor in 1797, gave on several occasions very splendid public entertainments at the Oxmeden, where tents were pitched for him and his court." End quote. We saw only ramshackle houses on the site. If a pillar interferes with the building of a house, it is ruthlessly knocked down. We took pictures of some of the best preserved. It may not be long before all evidence of this ancient place is erased. We talked to several people about this, but no one has any money for such projects. 
It seems incredible that this historical spot where Sultan Selim is said to have shot an arrow that, quote, drove in the ground at a distance of 1,400 pikes, Turkish measure, or 972 yards, two inches and three quarters, English measure, unquote, should return to dust. We also visited the bazaar where my wife would have spent half our fortune. I bought a large brass pitcher for her and also a gyroscopic tray with little bangles around the handle. On Wednesday, we go to Ankara, one hour by plane, to photograph the archery collection at the museum there. Tuesday, 3 p.m. We have a date with Orhan Gunsray for a preview of his picture, Genghis Khan. I will return the favor by showing two films we brought along of hunting in North America. We are also scheduled to visit Hagia Sophia, the oldest church in the world. Two million people live in Istanbul. There are 60,000 taxicabs all blowing horns at the same time. New York has only 20,000 cabs. We hired a cab and driver for $12 a 24-hour day. The streets are narrow. Pedestrians lead an exciting life. The Turks are very friendly, although conversation is difficult. We talk mostly with our hands. Twice I have had glasses of water upset on me at the dinner table. Thursday. What a whirlwind we are in. There is not a minute of peace. We had lunch today with the owner of a fine restaurant and are invited to have dinner with him also tomorrow night. Dinner is never served until 9 or 10 p.m., but since this man is trying to arrange a boar hunt for us, we can't complain. Yesterday, we went back to the shooting field of Oxmeden, a fabulous place we found it hard to keep away from. I shot a flight arrow out of sight, and I'm watching the papers today to see if it came down on anyone. We met the president of the Turkish Archery Club, who claims to be somewhat of an historian. We could not communicate because of the language, but he promised, through an interpreter, to write me the answers to my questions after he has time for some research. The museum at Ankara was like a flight into Grimm's fairy tales. One throne was adorned with diamonds, pearls, rubies, and emeralds, and was valued at $5 million. For two cigars, the minister got permission from the museum director to take some of the jeweled quivers and golden bows out into the sunlight for pictures. The bows had been made by sultans, he said, in the days when sultans were expected to learn some art or profession, and many of them chose the art of making bows and arrows. Halmi took pictures of me yesterday during a wrestling match with a tame bear owned by a band of gypsies. The mosque we visited is reported to be ornamented with 14 tons of gold. We will leave for New Delhi Saturday if no boar hunt develops. Otherwise, we'll go on Sunday. Friday, April 26th, Istanbul. We're having a beer with our Turkish archery friend. It is difficult to converse, but he has a few English words picked up, he says, from the cinema. The museum picture is finished. It will be a great story. One quiver we photographed had jewels valued at $100,000. Saturday, AM. The boar hunt was arranged, but we couldn't change our plane reservations, so we will leave for New Delhi this afternoon. We are going to the film studio to pay our respects this morning, and then to the home of our archery friend to see and photograph him and his collection. Sunday, 2 a.m., aboard plane. We are about to leave Tehran. Next stop will be New Delhi in about four hours. We left Istanbul at 6.30 p.m., and I was glad to leave, only because I need some rest. Too many friends all wanting to take us somewhere, phone ringing all the time. 
Wonderful people in the country, rich in history, but not rich in money by any means. They do not have enough money to preserve the relics found here. We saw signs of poverty and hard living in many areas. People carrying heavy loads on their backs or leading donkeys who had the loads on their backs. The food was excellent. Fresh vegetables, citrus fruits, fish, fowl, and delicious lamb. We will miss the cheese made from goat's milk. Sunday, April 28th, Ashoka Hotel, New Delhi. We got in early this morning and went straight to bed for a nap. This afternoon, we visited the zoo and the old red fort. It is very hot here. We made arrangements for a mongoose and cobra fight for pictures tomorrow morning. Tuesday. Time for just one more note before we leave here. We are in our air-conditioned room at the hotel, glad to be out of the heat for a while. It may be quite a few days before I can write again. Apparently, the palace is quite a distance from the town of Bundy, with only messenger service between them. The trip to Kota by train takes eight hours. We will be in an air-conditioned compartment with twin beds. We have finished everything we can do here. Spent the morning at the zoo, taking pictures and studying tigers and leopards. A five-week-old tiger cub I held on my lap became overly enthusiastic, and I had to change trousers. The people at the zoo were most cooperative. I tried catnip on both leopards and tigers with negative results. I did not try predator calls. This in the line of research for my coming hunt. Characteristics of the Indian people seem to include a degree of inertness. An argument between our driver and a bus driver this morning sounded almost affectionate. Today I ordered two suits and two sport coats and two silk shirts, the shirts to wear at the palace, from our Indian tailors. After selecting the suit materials at 2.30 this afternoon, the suits were ready for the first fitting at 7 p.m. this evening. The suits will cost $55 each, and the sport coats $30 each. My assignment begins tomorrow, the Bengal Tiger. If I am lucky enough to get one, it should be an exciting experience. And with a little more luck, we could have an opportunity for leopard, too. They have big ones in India. The one I saw at the zoo weighed 200 pounds. We have heard that they are more plentiful than tigers. But I only have 10 days to hunt. In the New Delhi paper, I read an advertisement. Yet another chance for Delhi citizens to consult Dr. So-and-so for heart trouble, insanity, nervous debility, hysteria, blood poisoning, leukoderma, digestive disorders, fistula, and all other baffling ailments. I also saw three columns dealing with matrimonial arrangements, advertising for wives or husbands, in other words. I'm running an ad tomorrow. If the response is good, I may stay. Pulsgar Palace, Bundy, India, May 2, 1963, 9 a.m. We arrived by train from New Delhi last evening and were met at Bundy by the Maharaja's aide, David Singh. David is a soft-spoken, fine-looking young man, and the drive-in from the city of Bundy was interesting and informative as he pointed out things to us along the way. This is the dry season, and everything is the color of ripe wheat. We saw farmers in the fields cutting and threshing grain in biblical style. Grain is shucked out of the hulls by the feet of cattle, who plot around and around tethered to a long pole. Pulsgar Palace is new, built in 1947. The old palace, two miles away in Bundy, was built in 1434, 
Bundy's late father's harem are living out their years at the old palace. We saw the orange flag of Pulsgar flying from a tower as we approached, and soon the whole castle was in sight. It was impressive, to say the very least, with its orange and white masonry and orange turban guards at the gates. Peacocks moved regally out of our way as we stopped before a large entrance on one side of the building. The Maharaja was a pleasant surprise, a well-built and handsome fellow in his early forties. He greeted us in the courtyard and then summoned servants to show us our quarters and carry our luggage. As each servant came up, he bowed to his highness and backed away. The bow is accompanied by hands held together prayer fashion against the chest, the head dipping low over them. The palace completely encircles a pool, the purpose of which, in addition to its beauty, is to help cool the premises. My bedroom is 25 feet square with an outside double bed. Off this large room are two dressing rooms and two full baths. On the ceilings of all these rooms are big overhead fans that circulate the warm air. Another apartment, apparently like mine, is across from me on the end of the pool. Between the two is an enormous sitting room, 25 by 60 feet or so. It is filled with luxurious chairs, divans, and tables. Entrance to this room is through a door leading from a porch screened completely by mats down which water cascades, setting up an effective air conditioning system. The mats are made of twigs woven together into a blanket six inches thick. The porch opens out to a courtyard on a slightly lower level than the pool. There is a fountain out here, and in the late evenings, this area serves as a dining room. Water for the pool comes from a small lake about a third of a mile from the palace. It is lush with lotus flowers, and the air above is bright with birds of every kind. Poolsgar means flower lake. We have freshly cut flowers in our rooms every day. We had a very long cocktail hour last night. His Highness, whom I shall incorrectly refer to as Bundy from here on, joined us in the courtyard and we talked of many things, but mostly about hunting tigers. He told us that two tigers, a male and female, had been staying near the palace until two days ago, but have now moved to nearby hills. They prowled around for two weeks, he said. Two days ago the male spent the day sleeping under a banana tree on the creek that feeds the pool, about one hundred yards from the palace. At 10 p.m., several boys in immaculate white suits with orange turbans brought out a large rug which they spread on the grass. Then they wheeled out a handsome dining table of dark, polished wood and set it on the rug. The palace teams with help, mostly male, all in spotless white and turbaned in orange. A stream of them brought out the courses of delicious food in gleaming silver bowls, platters, and trays. Bundy tried to warn me, too late, about one of the dishes passed, and I spent what seemed like an hour in an inferno of red pepper and other hot, excruciating Indian spices before I was at last able to draw a full breath. Dinner ended at midnight. It was a long day for us, after the all-day train ride from New Delhi. 2 p.m. We took some pictures around the palace this morning and also of a contest I had with one of the natives who used his slingshot against my bow. Sitting on the porch now during the heat of the day, it is cool and refreshing with the water dripping through the mats and the ceiling fans going. Bundy showed up at noon for a brief moment. Four tiger baits are out. They are checked each morning, and I'm keeping my fingers crossed. This evening, I understand, 
We will go hunting in the car. It is a jeep with a special hunting body. Breakfast was served in our rooms at 9 a.m. Slice of papaya, toast, tea, and scrambled eggs. Bundy's wife is in the palace somewhere, we were told, but she has not been in evidence up to this time. There are a few women working about the grounds, but they are always veiled. Friday, May 3rd, 1 p.m. Lunch was served from a tray in our rooms yesterday, and after that we drove to the town of Bundy to photograph a wedding. April and May are the months for weddings in India, but only on certain days. The wedding procession went by us on the street. A very colorful affair, with a bride who looked as though she should be struggling with eighth-grade arithmetic instead of getting married. There were white horses festooned with tassels and ribbons, and one man held a small boy before him in the saddle. The police were very cooperative in stopping traffic for the procession, and we had time to get some good pictures. Back to the palace about 6 p.m. At lunchtime, Bundy said he would take the hunting car and shoot a leopard. Just like that. He told us that four days ago, a leopard had killed a camel about 15 miles away. So, after returning from the wedding, we went out to check. Bundy had a man watching the carcass, and for three nights the leopard returned to feast on its kill. Last evening, however, he was not seen, and there was nothing to do but return to the palace. The immediate area round the palace is a game sanctuary, and on the way back we saw two foxes, a hyena, a gazelle, and a number of blue bulls. We blew a tire en route and did not get back until 11.30 p.m. We had the usual cocktails and dinner at 1.15 this morning, finished at 2.30 a.m. and then to bed. After breakfast today, we went to the old palace to view and photograph the armor, a fabulous place with walls 14 feet thick in some places. The old palace is built on a hill on the outskirts of Bundy and served as a fort in those days as well as a residence for the Maharaja. The great main doors are studded with heavy, deadly spikes to discourage the elephants used in combat in ancient times from breaking them down. Inside, besides the interesting armor, we saw frescoes on the wall with colors still bright and beautiful after all the centuries. We photographed a patriarchal attendant demonstrating a water clock now preserved in the museum. It consisted of two brass bowls, a smaller one set inside a larger. The small bowl, which floated in the water-filled larger bowl, had a hole in the bottom, and when it, in turn, was filled with water, it sank. This marked the time space of one hour and was heralded by the attendant, vigorously striking a symbol. We are sitting on the porch as I write. It is still very hot outside, but here it is cool and comfortable. Strange as it seems, we are tiger hunting. This is the way it is done. We cannot make a move until a tiger has been pinpointed in a certain thicket. Four baits have been placed and the machans are built and ready. Bundy has taken great pains to arrange for this hunt my makan, shooting platform in a tree, is in front, then a makan for the photographer and also one for Bundy who will back me with a gun. We know at this point that two tigers are on two different hillsides. Bundy has men watching them and reporting their movements. However, a hillside location is not enough. We have to know exactly where the tigers are before a beat is arranged. But even then, there is no assurance that the cat will pass within bow range. If he does not, Bundy will shoot him with a gun. I estimate my chances of getting a tiger are about 50 percent. 
This has been a long day. We had lunch in the dining room at 2.30, after which I took a nap. This evening we went for a ride in the jeep to try to locate cats. No cats, but we saw a boar, a sambar, a couple of blue bulls, jackals, civet cats, rabbits, and many species of night birds. We got back at 10 p.m., and I'm sitting out the cocktail hour writing this. If we had stayed here last evening instead of going out to look for leopards, we might have had a chance at a tiger. One passed a hundred yards from the palace wall at dusk. Bundy is a good hunter and is doing everything possible to make this a successful hunt. 11.45 p.m. We are still waiting for dinner. This way of life is necessary, I suppose, because of the heat. Since 10 p.m., the courtyard has been comfortable with a slight breeze stirring and the moon shining overhead. The table has been set out here on the grass all evening. How they keep food warm and fresh waiting out these uncertain hours, I do not know. The palace is full of beautiful silver. At every meal I see pieces I have not seen before. We drink beer from silver mugs that weigh about a pound each. These are presentation pieces, apparently, with inscriptions that read, To the Maharaja of Bundy, from Queen Mary, or To His Highness, from the Prince of Wales, or from Lord Mountbatten, etc. These oversized mugs have heavy glass bottoms for the purpose, we were told, of being able to see what the enemy was up to during a long, satisfying quaff. We had dinner at 12.45 and finished at 1.45, in bed at 2 a.m. The food is excellent. Some dinners are Indian food, eaten with the fingers, and others are English, served with all the formality fitting a palace. All of the meat is game, well-cooked and delicious. After an Indian meal, two boys in starched white coats and trousers appear with a silver basin and silver pitcher of warm water, plus soap and towels, so one can wash up properly after having eaten without the benefit of silverware. Saturday noon. I learned more about tiger hunting last night, talking with Bundy. These tigers do not live in the jungle, although by local parlance this country is called jungle. There is no tropical jungle except in the southern part of India. The country is hilly, almost mountainous. The leaves are scorched off almost all the trees at this season, and the ground is hard-baked, reddish clay. This tiger baiting is not so simple as I thought it would be. Most careful preparations go into it, and all the angles require prudent consideration. First of all, an exact spot for the bait must be selected, one that can be seen from a distant hill where natives can watch the tiger's movements with binoculars. Also, water must be provided so that he will not have to leave the area to quench his thirst. The water is carried to the spot by natives and poured into a large stone bowl set on the ground near the bait. After the tiger gorges himself on the bait, he sits by the carcass to keep hyenas, jackals, and buzzards away so there will be something left when he is hungry again. When the sun gets too hot, however, about 9 a.m., he gives up and returns to the nearest shade to lie down for the rest of the day. It is important to know exactly where the tiger is lying, and the watchers on the hillside get this information with their glasses. Word is then relayed by runners, on foot, bicycle, or car, to the palace where preparations for the hunt are made. Up to this point, there is nothing for us to do but wait. Sunday a.m. Bob and I went with Bundy last evening to check with villagers about 15 miles east of here to see if they knew anything about tigers in their area. No results, but coming back about 10 p.m., 
A beautiful tiger crossed the dirt road ahead of us. We stopped where he had crossed and turned the spotlight into the trees where he sat, partly hidden, for a few seconds before he slowly walked broadside through an opening to disappear in the bush again. It was a chilling, though thrilling, moment. Bundy said he was a big one and guessed his length at about 9 feet 10 inches. A forest fire about 40 miles away has ruined our chances for the bait in that area. The fire did not burn into the immediate area of the bait, but it got so close that Bundy thinks it should be moved. Yesterday, a small tiger circled one of the other baits, drank some water from the bowl, but did not stay. Today, I bought a slingshot from a native who gave me lessons on how to use it. They carry them to scare peacocks out of the mango trees. There are many peacocks all over this area. They have recently been named the national bird. While riding about in the jungle, it is a strange sight to see this gorgeous bird in the background of baked earth and leafless trees. Tuesday, 11 a.m. Early last evening, I went hunting with Bundy and shot a large sambar in his personal hunting grounds. There is plenty of game there in a wild, natural state. There is almost no game anywhere else. The sambar is an animal about the size of an elk, although his antlers are not so impressive. The one I shot was about 10 years old, with six points. We saw him first at a distance, and Bundy told me where to stand while he put him down the trail by circling around him. The sambar and his harem went by me at 25 yards. My arrow hit well. He ran about 300 yards and was dead when we got to him. It was too dark for pictures, so we went in this morning to do that job. Bundy and I showed movies last night. He had a professional film of his 30th birthday celebration and some reels of tiger hunting. 10 p.m. At noon today, a messenger came in to tell us that a tiger had been seen at one of the baits. They think it was the big one we saw the other night. A beat was immediately organized. About 60 natives armed themselves with tin basins, sticks, stones, and even an old muzzle-loading shotgun, anything that would make noise. We had a hasty lunch and then set out on the eight-mile drive. The bait was down in a canyon with water in it, and we carefully approached the Makans ready there for us. Mine was the front Makan, with Halmi and camera set up about 30 yards away. Besides Bundy's gun, there were at least 10 more strung out along the line the cat was expected to travel in front of the beaters. The tiger cannot be allowed to turn back toward the beaters. One or more would surely be killed. It was hot as hell, about 110 degrees. The tiger had been observed by the head hunter at the bait at 8 a.m. He saw it go into a thicket to sleep the hot day out. About this time, another tiger and two full-grown cubs were sighted on a nearby hillside, and this is when the hunter made a mistake. He left two natives to watch the first tiger, while he went to investigate the second. Apparently, the natives were not too careful and were seen. At any rate, the cat became suspicious and sneaked away, and when the beaters came by, all that emerged from the thicket were some monkeys and a peacock. The head hunter was very embarrassed. Tears rolled down his cheeks as he stood at stiff attention while Bundy pointed out the mistakes he had made. Thursday, 10 a.m., my arrow brought down a fine blue bull last evening. Everyone was impressed, as these bulls are claimed to be one of the toughest animals to kill. They are also about the size of an elk, but with legs as long as a moose. They have heavy, pointed, 10-inch horns. This animal is named Blue Bull because of his glossy, slate-colored hide. Bundy's head skinner takes care of all the trophies. He has an awesome set of skinning knives 
which he carries rolled up in an old brown cloth. He sharpens them before each job with a stone picked up from the ground near where he is squatting. We took pictures of Rosie, Bundy's elephant today. We named her Rosie because of her reddish trunk and forehead. I climbed up into the howdah with David Singh, and Halmi took pictures as we rode around the palace grounds in our rock-and-roll seat. Rosie had a strong leaning for some green leaves on certain trees, and nearly dethroned us on one or more occasions, rushing madly under and through these trees. To make up for this, though, she stood patiently while we picked fruit at eye level from her back. This evening we went to the village where the head hunter lives. The big tiger was back last night and cleaned up the bait, but he did not lie down nearby. We have now placed other baits in areas where three or four tigers have been seen. It is 3 a.m. We have just finished dinner and are going to bed. Friday, 8 p.m. No tiger news today. I am beginning to get impatient. Life moves so slowly here, and tradition governs much of the activity. The heat is almost unbearable, and consequently, life at the palace is quite different from anything I have ever experienced. One dresses informally, loose-fitting silk shirts and bare feet, and while I appreciate the opportunity to live in a palace, the formalities and delays are hard on a restless spirit. No one ever hurries for any reason. This heat melts me. I have the time, but not the inclination to write other than my notes. We average three baths a day, and if it were not for my great inertia, I would probably take more. The Maharaja wants to kill a moose. We are talking about setting up a trip. I hope I can arrange to have him visit us in Grayling. He would bring his son with him, which would set Hannah's young heart aflutter. Bundy is very cooperative and has the patience and tolerance necessary for the limitations of the bow. Movies are planned for tonight again. A dinner of wild boar will be served about 2 a.m. I got a shot at a boar two days ago, but missed. I slept about four hours this afternoon and early evening. The sky turned cloudy today, and a dust storm developed. I tried to buy some loafing slippers in Bundy today, but could not find my size, 14. Dinner was at 2.30 and to bed at 4 a.m. Monday, May 13th, 5 p.m. We're on the train en route to Delhi. Many things have happened since I last wrote in my journal on Friday. At 10 a.m. Saturday, we got word that a large tiger and two smaller ones were feeding on a bait about 10 miles away. At 2 p.m., we left for the area. In the meantime, a beat had been arranged for. We had lunch and assembled our gear. At the last minute before getting into the hunting car, we took time to carry out an old Indian ritual that was supposed to assure a successful hunt. Two effigies of tigers, each about a foot long, were outlined in gunpowder on the cement drive. When an attendant touched them off with a match and the tigers blazed up in a smoky whoosh, it was up to me, the hunter, to stomp out the blaze with the soles of my shoes to symbolize the way I would soon snuff out the life of the tiger. This performance was accompanied by exciting applause and wide grins on the faces of my audience, mostly a smattering of attendants and servants around the palace, as well as the hunting party. This business, like so many things in this strange country, seems to me a waste of time. I was nervous about the tiger and felt we should get moving before it was too late. Bundy is a good hunter, however, and he knows more about tiger hunting than I'll ever know and a glance at his placid face assured me that all was proceeding according to rule. 
We parked the hunting car in some thick brush and made our way as quietly and as fast as possible to the shooting platforms. I was alone in the first Machen, nine or ten feet up on the stub of a thorn tree. The mountain rose steeply about a hundred yards from me. Thirty yards on my right, Bundy and Halmy with his cameras were up and ready in the number two Machen. On my left, a third Machen supported David Singh. Eight or ten more guns acted as stops at stands beyond the Machens. Some were on the ground, some in trees, and two on the elephant. I looked down on a well-used game trail just below me that stretched on to pass under the number two Machen. Suddenly, out of the quiet, we heard the beaters, a great band of fifty or sixty natives, forming a semicircle strung out on the mountain and along the sides of the steep canyon walls. Some of them had muskets and some tin pans. All had sticks and stones which they threw or rolled down the steep walls to accompany their yells, whistles, gunshots, and general clamor. The beaters did not advance much but kept up their infernal racket until the whole countryside rang with the din. We were only about 300 yards from where the tigers were known to be sleeping and I fully expected them to come out on the trail directly below me. It was a tense time and not one of us took our eyes from the area where it was anticipated the cats would emerge from the bush. After several minutes of this frozen concentration, I caught a slight movement to the right. My breath suddenly choked me as I turned to see the biggest of the cats stealing along the edge of the steep mountainside about a hundred yards away. He started climbing slowly in the zigzag path. It looked too far for me and I expected to hear Bundy's gun any minute since these tigers must be killed at every opportunity. The only reward the beaters have for risking their lives on these hunts is to see the tiger killed, to save their cattle, camels, goats, and themselves. Bundy told me that he would not allow a tiger to escape if it could possibly be prevented. I watched the cat on the hillside. Several seconds went by and no shot from Bundy. It occurred to me in a flash that Maybe he had not seen the tiger, and that this might be the only chance I would have. The arrow looked good, but it struck into the flinty hillside behind him. He changed ends quickly, as only a cat can do, and my second arrow hit true and brought on the most blood-chilling, snarling, and roaring. The tiger spun around a couple of times and then headed straight down into the bush below me. Just as it disappeared into the thicket, Bundy's gun went off, and I thought, there goes my trophy. I looked at his highness then for the first time and saw that he was shooting back of me at one of the other tigers that was streaking toward the beaters. I found out later that none saw the cat I shot at at any time. The terrible roaring stopped abruptly and there was considerable conversation in their native tongue between Bundy and his hunters. The head man went into the thicket with a big double and found my cat dead. Now word was flashed to the beaters to advance on the other two tigers who were still in the bush between us. They were roaring and growling and darting about just a few yards from us. When the beaters came within 50 yards, the cats had to make a run for it. The one Bundy hit came down my trail like a streak, baring teeth and growling. I shot behind him, but Bundy rolled him over with his second shot. The other was shot at several times by the stop guns, but escaped up and over the hillside to freedom. I couldn't help but admire its courage and even feel a little thrill over the well-deserved escape. With all the tigers accounted for, the hunters and beaters closed in around the Machens as I picked my way down the thorn tree and was led into the thicket on hands and knees. We had to crawl through a tunnel-like passageway because one could not even back his way through that dense tangle of thorn bush 
with a machete. We came out into a small opening, and there lay my tiger, between a large rock and a tree. It was a handsome, average-sized tiger with a beautiful skin. It weighed about 300 pounds. The arrow had gone through the liver. We did not stop to look for the arrow since the sun was beginning to drop behind the mountain and we had pictures to take before the light faded. Bundy's men carried the beast out on poles, the big carcass swaying as if in a hammock. It appeared to be about all the barefooted natives could carry as they shuffled along over the uneven ground. The bears were relieved of their burden when we came to an open space, laying the tiger on the ground for pictures. We went through the customary roll of congratulations and handshakes and smiles and admiring glances at the trophy. Bundy was relieved, I believe, to have this over. I feel he did not think it very likely that a tiger could be taken with a bow. Rosie was brought up to admire the dead cat also, but she showed nothing but disdain, if not anger, at the sight of it laying dead and helpless on the ground. A centuries-deep enmity, no doubt, between tigers and elephants. She made feigning shuffles toward the carcass and even kicked it around a little, like a cat playing with a mouse. After the photographers were through, we loaded the tiger on a truck and took it to a nearby village where word had gone on ahead and a small celebration was in readiness for us. Colorfully dressed women waited with a drummer to put on a victory dance. The cat was dropped once more on the ground and the women moved rhythmically around it to the beat of the drum, singing the traditional tiger kill song while a hundred more people stood watching. The women were veiled and carried bowls on their heads filled with radishes fresh from the garden and green onions with long, bright tops. The temperature was well over a hundred and Bundy's offering of cold beer, limeade, whiskey, and gin from the palace car were gratefully accepted. Later in the cool of the evening, when the temperature had nosedived to 90 degrees, we started back to the palace, traveling through two villages en route. I don't know who sent word, but the people here were ready with the celebration also. The first village had a bagpipe in addition to the drums and dancers. The village chief presented Bundy with one rupee, 20 cents, offered on a towel held in both hands. Protocol called for Bundy to then give the rupee to the chief's wife, after which the dancing girls circled the car and Bundy deposited a rupee into the bowl each carried on her head. The same thing was repeated at the second village. Our train reservations were made for Monday morning. The tiger had been shot on Saturday, so we only had one day, Sunday, to finish our film work. The killing of a tiger calls for a celebration at the palace, too, and this was to be no exception. We showered and rested between 7 and 10 p.m., and then assembled in the courtyard. Chairs were arranged in a semicircle on a rug spread out before the fountain. We were seated in the center with Bundy, flanked by his aides and department heads. Several rounds of drinks preceded the entry of three musicians, who seated themselves, cross-legged, against the fountain wall at the edge of the rug. A drummer sat down in the center with two very small kettle drums. On his left was a sitar player, and on his right, a native with an Indian accordion. Now it was time for the dancing girls, sisters age 18 and 21. They were the daughters of a former palace dancer, we were told. The girls were dressed in red silk native costumes with long flounced skirts that rippled over their slim, bare feet as they danced. The dance went on for more than two hours until even the spectators began to grow weary, entertaining as it was. These girls never marry, Bundy explained to us, but they have gentlemen friends. The elder had a child and the younger was pregnant. 
We got to bed at 4 a.m. The next morning, farewell ceremonies took place in the courtyard before we left for the train. The Maharaja was there to greet us, and as we began our goodbyes, his head servant, followed by five attendants, all in splendorous white with gold buttons and orange turbans, paced across the grass, bearing a large tray draped in gold cloth. On the cloth lay a beautiful Bundy dagger, a 300-year-old relic from His Highness's collection of arms. Bundy presented the dagger to me with appropriate words, and I was prompted by someone standing nearby to give him a silver coin in turn to assure that our friendship would not be cut by the gift of the sharp dagger. I was exceedingly pleased to receive this fine token of the Maharaja's friendship. One of the attendants who had followed the head servant out to the courtyard now stepped forward with another tray on which lay three garlands of gold flowers which were looped around my neck, one on top of the other, as a parting gesture of friendship. After the final handshakes and promises to meet again, we started out the gate on the way to the train. The militia stood at present arms as the car rolled to a stop in front of Rosie, who had been brought up to place still another wreath of flowers around my neck with her trunk. We had spent 11 days in Bundy. The hunting was far from strenuous, and in spite of the heavy social activity and late hours, it was a most unusual and pleasant experience. I have an invitation to come back. There is still the leopard, and a beautiful little gazelle called Thinkara that was never there when my arrows got there. I doubt if he ever would be. Epilogue. On the overhead rack, seat row eight, right-hand side, flight 202 Alitalia, is where I left my briefcase when deplaning at New Delhi on our way to Bundy. I missed it just after we had cleared customs, but the plane had gone. A teletype was dispatched to Bangkok, but the plane beat the wire. Another wire to Hong Kong, but the plane beat that one too. Contact was made with the plane at Tokyo, but they reported no briefcase on the overhead rack, seat row eight on the left side, Alitalia flight 202. Another wire reached the plane at Hawaii, advising them to look on right side, seat row eight, flight 202, Alitalia. By this time, we had left Delhi by train for Kota, turning the responsibility of having the case forwarded to us at Bundy over to Tradewinds, a Delhi customs and brokerage service. Six days later, the case reached me by special messenger at the palace in Bundy. Bill from Tradewinds was $22, itemized as follows. Round trip train fare, Delhi to Kota, eight hours each way. Round trip bus fare, Kota to Bundy, 40 miles. Taxi fare, Bundy to Palace, two miles. Taxi is a two-wheel horse-drawn buggy with rubber bulb auto horn. The whole trip would take three days. I have no idea what third-class fare would be. Bear's Field Notes is produced by the team at Bear Archery. Learn more about Bear Archery and its complete suite of products at beararchery.com. Narration by Alan Johnson. Direction, production, sound mixing, and editing by Smarter Labs. Theme song by Isaac Ollie. Chapter art and design by Samantha Marksberry. Special thanks to the Bear Archery team for providing their original content to produce these episodes. 
Visit bayerarchery.com to listen to all episodes, sign up for future updates, and see articles, maps, photos, videos, and more.